Welcome. You're listening to Vibrant Potential. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Frickman. Today's guest caught my attention by publicly sharing her story of alcoholism. Kelly Benamati has now been sober for more than six years as I'm recording this Thanksgiving week of 2015. Her story reminds us we all have a lot to be grateful for, even if all we can hold on to for the moment is that we're alive. Kelly's story also points to humankind's ability to overcome the bleakest of situations, and not only that, but to turn it around for the betterment of those around her. Thank you, Kelly, for sharing with us in such a raw, vulnerable way. Your story, I'm positive, will serve to empower others to take back the reins of their life. I, for one, am glad you chose life. Welcome to Vibrant Potential. We provide you with everything you need to know to overcome stress, fatigue, and chronic health challenges, as well as optimizing your performance in fitness, relationship, and business. We use integrative health solutions and functional medicine strategies, including brain-based approaches, inspired fitness tips, emotional intelligence coaching, and spiritual growth techniques, so you can live the life you want, connect deeply with others, and fulfill your vibrant potential. Your host is functional medicine expert, genetic biohacker, and triathlon coach, Dr. Chris Frickman. Awesome. So why don't we start with how did you know or notice or determine that you were an alcoholic? I started hiding alcohol bottles in the neighbor's bushes and things like that and going to frequent different places in town to buy alcohol. And so with that, I started to see where, you know, I I woke up in the morning and sometimes I would drink in the morning. And it got to the point where I was hiding alcohol in boots upstairs and I would run up there quickly folding laundry at night and just take a few sips so I could, you know, numb. And I had those feelings inside. I had the unworthiness. It was a, a very emotional time for me and, I, and, and very painful for me. Thinking back, there was one night where I had taken nine tablespoons of Tylenol with codeine and a couple bottles of wine and, and you know, some of my supplements. And my children were upstairs. And I didn't want to live and I didn't want to die. And when I got to that point and all the things that I allowed to happen in my life, I knew that there was an issue. Do you work with people that are alcoholics? I do. Do you ever find that a lot of the people that are uh, addicted to anything, whether it's alcoholism or sugar or drugs or whatever, if they're addicted to something, they have a they have a pretty hard time admitting it even to themselves. Would you agree? I would definitely agree because the first step in our recovery is admitting that we have a problem and that our lives have become unmanageable. Is there any advice that you can give someone that is sort of like asking themselves like, oh man, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe I am drinking too much. Sure. So when I work with people in recovery, you know, we talk about, is your life unmanageable? You know, are you paying your bills? Are you getting up and getting dressed? Not just the depressive state, but are you hiding from others? Are you, you know, lacking the relationships in your life and trust? Are you hiding alcohol in any area of your life? Are you over-consuming and people are saying to you, you know, maybe you've had a couple drinks too much or maybe you should lessen up or, you know, when are you drinking? Uh, Do you show up for life in general? 
You know, are people seeing you? Are you visible? And where are you getting your alcohol? You know, alcoholics typically frequent many different places because they don't want others to know that they're consuming too much. Mm, got it. So that's a telltale sign. And I know for myself, I was going to, you know, all different grocery stores and Walmart and things like that. And then I was uh, putting the alcohol in different dumpster bins around town and giving it to my girlfriends to throw away in their recycle bins. So that's how my cycle was. Listen, if if you have a behavior that you're hiding on a regular basis, good idea to question why that is. Yes, that's a good indication that you probably have an addiction problem or, or uh, the telltale sign of alcoholism. I can think back to when I was hiding alcohol in a sippy cup at my ex-husband's uh, softball game. And there are people that have been known to, you know, drink while they're driving down the road and hide airplane bottles in their purses. So these are the type of stories that we hear from people that I get to work with in eviction, that they will hide it, they will get it from anywhere, and they'll do whatever they need to do to get that. One thing I want to hit on, can you shed some light from your point of view? What is an enabler, and how might one of the listeners determine whether or not they're engaging in enabling behavior? An enabler is somebody who helps to contribute to our obtaining of alcohol and consuming it. Gotcha. What kind of role did emotional work have in your in your recovery, if any? Emotionally, through uh, recovery, I had to learn to love myself again. The emotional part of it was that when I got there, I was pretty much dead. And I was thrown into the rooms of AA, and I had to learn how to feel my feelings again. Because alcoholism numbs us. And we numb our feelings, we numb our situations, we numb other people, and I had to learn to feel again. And I really had to learn how to um, find out who I was, what I loved about myself, and how I was going to better myself. And in part of doing that, I wrote social, I wrote uh, positive affirmations around any place that I frequented. My car, the mirror, my home, the doors, books, purses, things such as that. And I really had to turn it into a self-fulfilling prophecy that I am worthy, that I am loved, and that everything that I went through got me to where I needed to be today in the rooms of recovery. Why is 12 steps so important? Well, number one, admitting that we have a problem is the first step to anything in life. If we want to get better, we have to recognize what the issue is and then take the necessary steps and being able to correct that and transform our lives and make the necessary changes to become the person who we're supposed to be. And in part of that, um, we do it in order and our lives have become unmanageable. Where were they unmanageable? And then we make a list of the, the steps when we do our fifth step as I work with women in recovery. We uh, write our wrongs. We put everything down on paper from the time we can remember our first drink all the way to present time of receiving, getting into a recovery place. And we write down all of the regrets that we have in our life. Then we take steps to make amends. We write down all the people we have harmed physically or verbally. And then we actually go and make amends unless it would be to disrupt the situation. Then we write letters and uh, I recommend burning our steps. Some people want to keep them for progression. And then through that process, you know, we do a daily inventory. Where, where could I have been better today? And we actually get to look at a synopsis of our life so that we're able to be better people. We're able to stay in recovery and we learn to be grateful. 
something that a lot of alcoholics don't do because, you know, the alcohol numbs us to the point where we only care about a drink and how can we get our next drink. And we have to learn to live life on life's terms. And through that 12-step program, we get to do that. Oh, okay. Interesting. For me, I look at it and I see a lot of just really powerful thinking, whether you're addicted to something or not. For me, this the first step, like admitting that, I, I don't know if I have it verbatim how AA says it, but basically admitting that you have a problem, right? Right. We could maybe debate about the word problem, but essentially the first step is just dealing with reality. I think that's something that, that a lot of people man, I think people struggle with that all the time. I mean, like everybody almost uh, is not just not not in reality about what's actually going on. And that's not just, you know, problems that they have, but just like their whole life in general, like they're just not dealing with what is instead of dealing with what is, you know, in a matter of fact way, they and I say they, but I mean, I I include myself in this, we, we paint, we color reality with our stories that we make up about reality. And, um, and then we start throwing judgments on it and stuff like that. And, and in reality, what happens is that takes away our power, because we can't, you know, to bring it back to addiction, we can't deal with a problem. If we don't, if we don't admit that it's there, if we don't see that it's there, because that which we resist will persist. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> so as soon as you admit that there, you know, if, if there's a spider on the wall and you just keep saying there's no, there's no spider on the wall, there's no spider on the wall, there's no spider on the wall. Well, you can't, that's not going to change unless, uh, if you admit there's a spider on the wall, you can go over and sweep it away or, or <laughs> let it outside or, or kill it or call an exterminator or whatever you want to do with the spider. But if you don't admit that the spider's on the wall, the spider's going to stay on the wall. Exactly. So I think that's, that's super powerful. And I, and I love the fifth step too, of, of just taking responsibility. And again, I don't know if that's how AA talks about it or not, but to me, it's, it's about taking responsibility for what you've done in your life. That, again, is a way of getting out of that victim state. That's right, because the victim role for us is a place for destruction, as we had already seen when we hit rock bottom. When we've had enough, we'll do something different. And through the steps, we're able to do difference. When we right our wrongs, we, we say what we will be responsible for. How are we going to live our lives differently? And then we get to take the steps necessary guided by a sponsor and someone who's already been through the steps and has some recovery time, typically a year or more, and they get to help us to transform our lives. And then they will love us in the program because we typically do not love ourselves when we're drinking. And um, they love us until we can love ourselves. What if someone is sitting at home right now and they're, they're listening to this and they're like, yeah, I mean, I drink. It's probably a little too much, but I mean this is what I do to get through my life. You know, maybe I don't have a fulfilling social life or, and, you know, maybe there's even some, some kind of abuse, verbal abuse or emotional abuse, uh, physical abuse, even whatever. And so I feel justified in, in doing this. You know, I'm, this makes me feel better for a while. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm kind of a, I am a victim here. That, that's, that is the reality. My reality is I'm a victim. And this, mm. uh, this alcohol makes me feel better. Um, 
can you speak to that? Like, is, 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 um, I'm trying to think of how to like ask this question. I guess what I'm getting at is, is to me, unfortunately, that's not going to be a very powerful story, right? It's not going to be a very powerful way to look at the facts, the reality. And I, I guess I, I'm trying to ask you like, uh, maybe like what advice would you give that person? Sure. So when I was, you know, laying on the ground, not wanting to, to wake up to the reality or all my relationships had dissipated and I had pushed everybody away from my life and they had looked at me like, you know, you'll never amount to anything, including my family members. Um, you know, they, AA showed me a better way. They showed me how to live. They showed me to live a vibrant life. They showed me to get my life back. They showed me to be able to um, hold myself accountable. You know, when we get into the program of AA, they tell us to do 90 meetings in 90 days. I probably did 130 meetings because I wanted to get better. I wanted to have my children who were taken from me through this process. And I wanted to have them more than I wanted to drink. And that's the thing. We have to want to be able to live more than we want to die. And, you know, people have health issues through this process of liver and the cirrhosis and hepatitis C and things like that. And those things build and build and build. And so through that process, you know, we, we have this just one day at a time if we can live in the moment and we know that there's hope for another day and that we will be um, carried through and we'll be shown a better life that um, when we come in, you know, there's lots of dabs of Vaseline on our eyes and we don't see clearly the picture of what our life really could be like. And each day that we're sober, we're able to have a little part of that Vaseline dissipate from our lives. And we're able to have a clearer picture and our minds get clearer. And, you know, they tell us in the program that the amount of years that we drank, it's going to take that many amount of years for us to actually be a, a, a normal functioning person in society, if, you could, if we could say it that way. And, um, and that is held to be true for myself. Um, you know, I had known probably since the day I got married in 2004 and I drank until I left him in October of 2009. And so really it's a, it's a process. And it takes work and there is hope that we're able to get better and we're able to be the moms that God has called us to be. And we're able to have a spiritual awakening that what I was doing wasn't working. And then if I continued on that path, as I've worked with others in treatments and spoken through hospital and detox centers and other meetings in my program, that, you know, we, we have a choice every day to drink or not. And when we see someone who can give us a glimpse of that hope, it allows me to try and, and make better decisions. For me, I like when you say it wasn't working because to me, that's all this is really about. This isn't about a judgment of uh, if you're a good person or not. It's, mm -hmm. it's just about are your stories that you're, that you're putting on reality? Because again, from my point of view, we all make up stories that's what I call it, at least. Like sometimes there's people that kind of take offense to that, that languaging about it. But I, I'm not trying to be trite or anything. I'm just saying we all we do we color reality with with our with our past. We see our past and everything, and so uh, we're making up these stories. Are you the stories you're making up working for you? Are they powerful? Are they bringing you to where you want to be? So you noticed that, hey, this isn't working. And then that's kind of like step one. This, uh, for me at least, or, or the, first, the first part of step one or something like, hey, this isn't 
this isn't working and that's reality like i this is not what i this is these behaviors are not bringing me to where i want to be and i might not even know where i want to be right now but i know i don't want to be right here <laughs> exactly yeah and part of the process is that people have to hit rock bottom and everybody's bottom is different okay so when we get into the program, we hear people's stories that my story wasn't the same as yours, but you know what? It's relatable. And I understand you because I've been there, but it was just a different part of my reality. And, you know, you really don't hit the hot rock bottoms until you've had the many DUIs or you've been jailed or institutionalized. I've known people who have been put in straight jackets and institutionalized. And when their pain gets great enough, they have no other choice but to change. They have no other choice to do something different. They have no other choice but to take responsibility for their actions and then right their wrongs. And that's what's so powerful about the program. It gives us hope to be able to get on a path, a different path, and break the chains of our path. Why is, it, why is the fifth step powerful in your mind? Like, Why is it important to take responsibility for what, uh, what you're calling your wrongs? Sure. Uh, the fifth step, so, you know, if we don't get pen to paper, and my process took a while, okay, so I, did, I was very diligent, and I wrote every occurrence down for the people that I, I thought, you know, I have all these resentments, and we must get these resentments on paper or we will drink again. The big book tells us we created our misery and that if we do not put our, our resentments from pen to paper and, and work with a sponsor, that we will drink again because we harbor secrets. We harbor things that we're not getting out in the open. Because remember, you know, we hit our alcoholism. We hit our behaviors. We were promiscuous. You know, we have all of these things that brought us to our knees and not a good way. And so what we need to do with our resentments is we need to write them down and have that catharsis process. And then we need to vocalize them so that we're able to see what our wrongs were, but we are also able to auditorily process that so that we know how to make the amends and to whom. It's a very healing process. You know, think about if we have all of these bottled up emotions and that we have our backpack. And oftentimes, you know, we stuff and we stuff and we stuff. And we have to get those things out so that that is part of the healing process. It's very powerful and emotional. Do you think that humility has anything to do with that process? Is it, is, it, is it a powerful state in your mind? Is it a powerful state to be in, to be, to kind of have humility about where you were at, what you did, and, and the taking responsibility of it? I think it is if you really want to change. You know, we have to really want the help and then be able to stay sober on our own and with our higher power, whomever you choose to have as your higher power. Okay, okay, fair enough. Um, in your journey with alcoholism, what importance does ongoing support play? Oh, that's a good question. So my importance as being a social butterfly and just thriving to have relationships to build up ourselves and our characters and the emotional stability that that brings is that through having that support, other women have gone through this prior to myself. And, you know, when I got there, they were hugging me and they wanted me to text them and they were calling me and I'll come pick you up for a meeting and, you know, that camaraderie that I wasn't used to. I was used to living in my own little bubble with my kids and my husband when he was there. And, you know, I was pretty isolated because alcoholism does that to us. You know, it allows us to 
free, uh, feel how we want to feel whenever we're alone. And we feel great that way, you know, it alters our state of mind. And then, um, that's like a vicious cycle. We just pass out and we wake up and we do it again. And that's how our lives become. And so when I got into the rooms, you know, I was lacking love and the women in the rooms, we were told to stick with other women for the first year and not get into a relationship and not to um, make any major life decisions in the first year. We just have to work on ourselves. And through that process, part of it was building relationships because when we drink and isolate, we don't know how to build relationships, some of us. You know, with my college degrees, of course, and and um, just having good, uh, solid foundation with um, how to psychologically take care of myself emotionally and spiritually, uh, I was, you know, doing pretty well, I felt. But I did need the love something that I lack. And it was very important for me to be held accountable that my sponsor would tell me, you know, this first year is all about you. I want you to get better. I want you to learn how to heal. I want you to have this catharsis process. And through that, I was told that I needed to call her every day and be held accountable and check in with her. And also I needed to send her and text her a gratitude list and learn how to be grateful and for everything that I had, because it was always just given to me. And um, so that was very powerful for me and very healing. Would you say, so you already said that you're a social butterfly, but what about people that are, I mean, clearly you're not, you know, afraid to talk and stuff like that. You're an extrovert, right? You know, which comes, you know, there's, there's good things about that and bad things about that. It's, 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 and I guess another way to say it is there, that's neither good nor bad, right? It's some of us are a little bit more, more extroverted and some of us have more introverted traits. So what about people that would not identify with being a social butterfly? Is ongoing support for addiction uh, in general and alcoholism in particular, is that important? You know what? It really is because I was taught to go up in meeting and to at least introduce myself to at least one or two people at a meeting so that I can start getting some women who would support me, support my recovery, support me staying sober, support me getting my children back. You know, they were taken from me, um, as painful as that is. And they were there for me, especially if I wanted to drink, you know, because our lives are hard. We're unable to numb anymore in recovery. So now we have to do everything sober. And that's, a, that's really a difficult process for a lot of people. So women would tell me, if you feel like having a drink, call me in the middle of the night. I'll be there for you. I'll show up for you. I'm, gonna, I'm never going to let you down. You know, and people disappoint us a lot in life, but these women were so supportive and they were so grateful I was there, you know, saying to me what we say in recovery is I saved you a seat. And, um, and, and that's, you know, really, it was really beneficial and helpful to me to know that I could lean on somebody. And then if I called them and they saw my phone number, they knew it was important, especially if it was in the middle of the night. Oh yeah. And so that that's was so good for both of you because you get to get support, obviously. And that reminds, that makes me think of uh, a saying that I've heard many times, especially like in the business arena, uh, a, a gentleman named Jim Rohn uh, said, you are the average of the five people you hang out with the most. And uh, yeah. so if you want to be a great tennis player, you got to play tennis with really good tennis players. If you want to be <laughs> an amazing business person, uh, probably don't, you know, no judgments here. It's just like, just kind of the facts of it. Probably don't hang out with, with uh, homeless people all the time. If you're trying to be a successful CEO, like you need to surround yourself with people that have habits and behaviors and things that, that will kind of rub off. And so if, if one of the traits that you want to have is uh, being sober, 
probably a good idea to have some sober people around you, huh? <laughs> right. And they said to me, you know, if you want what we have, you got to do what we do. You know, and that was powerful for me as well. You know, if you want to be sober, you have to stay accountable. You have to show up for meetings. You have to do some service work. And, you know, that's something I didn't, I had, I had to learn. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting for me because, because what I see is a dynamic there that's helpful for both parties because so they're there helping you kind of showing you the way but also they get to feel good about themselves because they're helping someone else and they're they're kind of like furthering their staying soberness (laughs) if you will right and then they I help keep them sober so that might not make sense to you but if I'm coming out from my first day of sobriety and they see me coming in with that reddened face because of the that makes complete sense yeah, so they're like, you know, you're going to keep us sober. You know, you're helping me more than I'm helping you. And through that process, I learned that as I sponsored other women and did the steps and big book studies that, you know, I, I got to see other women come in and they would tell their stories to me. And I'd say, oh, that's just going to keep me sober so that I'm not jailed and institutionalized. You know, I've already lost my children. I don't want to go and, and have a DUI or, you know, have my license taken away. One of my sponsors was uh, could not drive for 20 years because she had so many DUIs and that was a yet for me. Yeah. So uh, that was a yet for me. You know, they talk about the yet, you know, you, you keep uh, playing the victim and we talk about an alcoholism. If you pour me, pour me, pour me another drink. (laughs) Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Right. What did you say though? Yet? Yes. It's a yet. You know, we, I say, well, I didn't lose my license for 20 years. And she said, Kelly, that's a yet, you oh, know? Oh um, yeah. 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 Like a case of, the you know, yet. okay. I gotcha. Exactly. So you got to change your thinking, change your behaviors. They said, you don't have to change much, just everything. And in part of that process, it's you having to change the people, places and things. Right. Right. Let's say there's two people. They both decide that they're they're alcoholics. They both see that there's a problem and they want something different. They both stop drinking and they're both sober for a year. And one of them is pretty humble about it and says, you know, if if they're asked about it or it comes up, it's, yep, I'm a I'm a recovering alcoholic. I believe that's the 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 way that people talk about it, right? I'm not a recovered alcoholic. I'm a recovering alcoholic. It's like some people always say that I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm a 45 year recovering alcoholic. So a 45 year sober recovering alcoholic. They, they always identify with being an alcoholic, even if they haven't had a drink in 45 years. And then there's the other person that, that I've noticed that, that says, uh, yeah, I mean, I did have a drinking problem or maybe they even like, yeah, I was an alcoholic, but not anymore. I'm good. Do you, is that uh, something that you've noticed too? Um, Typically, if people are frequenting meetings. Well, I'm not even talking about, I'm not even talking about meetings. I'm talking about life. Because if they're at the meetings, I get that there, there's a certain way that people talk at these meetings, right? And so Mm -hmm. it's just accepted that, it's just accepted that at these meetings, what you're going to say is, is, you know, hi, I'm so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic like isn't it don't you have to say that like every time you talk typically we do yeah so, so that's right that's like um anchored in every time you go but I just mean like in life like let's say there's just say you're at a business luncheon for example and the topic comes up maybe maybe some people get some cocktails or something even or, or a mimosa or, or whatever you know like someone says 
nope, I'm not going to do that. I'm a, I'm a recovering alcoholic. More power to you guys. Like, that's fine. You guys want to do that. I just, I choose not to drink because I'm a recovering alcoholic. The other person says, um, yeah, I mean, I can probably just have one drink. It's, it's not a big deal. Like I used to be an alcoholic or I used to have an alcohol problem or however they say it for themselves, but I'm over that. Mm -hmm. How does that work for people usually? So I'll give you two parts to that. Typically, um, I'm not in those situations because as alcoholics, we learn to surround ourselves with those that don't drink. So we're not submersed in those types of situations. And in my profession, I, I, you know, typically don't go to any bars or anything where alcohol is. And number two, that if I'm in that situation, uh, the six years I've been sober, I have not had to say openly to anybody I'm a recovering alcoholic. Uh, mm, okay. A couple of things. To, um, to protect myself and my children, I use my anonymity. And so what I do, and I've not heard this ever, even with uh, the six years, of anyone openly saying that. So that's like a misnomer and misconception that we really say that. What we are kind of taught and just on a personal level is, um, you know, no, thank you. I, you know, I'm just, I'm not, I, I don't, I'm not going to drink today or something like that. You know, there's not really this thing where we, we openly say, you know, I'm an alcoholic. Well, um, we usually protect let, let, let me give you, let me give you another example. I was listening to the Rich Roll podcast. Are you familiar with Rich Roll? No, I'm not. It's a good podcast. He's a big endurance athlete. Uh, he used to struggle with with addiction, and I actually forget now if it's if it was alcohol or if it was some kind of drugs or something like that. But honestly, if you want to know, you can probably listen to a few of his episodes, and it'll probably come up within within two or three episodes because it comes up in a lot of in a lot of his episodes. It just seems like it comes up, and. And he does say, he says something like, and Rich, I apologize if I, if I get this, if I'm, if I'm saying it exactly wrong, but he says something to the effect of, I am a recovering alcoholic. And it's just mm -hmm. like, like, he's not ashamed of it. And he doesn't, it's not like he's like in people's face about it, but it, there's no, there's no like amount of wanting to hide it. It's, and I feel like some people almost, they're almost ashamed of their past behavior and they almost, again, this is an outsider's point of view. Maybe I've got it all wrong, but it almost seems like they're trying to hide the alcoholism like they were mm -hmm. hiding alcohol at one point, you know? And, and what I've seen is, is the people that seem to be quite open about it and, and just still say like, yeah, yeah, I'm a recovering alcoholic or, or whatever words that they use. If, if they're, if they're honest like that and they're open about it and they're matter of fact, there's no shame there. They, it seems like they stay sober. Yeah, I certainly would agree with you because again, that's part of that fifth step process. You know, that if we hide those things, we'll be sure to drink it. You know, and they teach us that. Um, again, I'm not ashamed, of course, to bring it and be humble enough and vulnerable enough to speak about my sobriety and being an alcoholic. Uh, it's just typically from my experience that I don't just go to a restaurant or out with business associates and that we would be having a drink. Um, I would not be ashamed to say, you know, I've had an issue with alcohol and no thank you. And they would be understanding because I surround myself with those who are, you know, clean and sober and they are not drinking. And of course, my family and, and my close friends know that. But certainly, I do agree with you that 
anybody who is ashamed to speak of it or say they can just have one drink are fooling themselves. They are masking a problem. Got it. Okay. Thanks for shedding some light on that. So what do you think has been really key to your recovery? So there's, would you say that, I mean, clearly you've spoken a lot about the 12 step um, process and so that's been like really key and it sounds like continues to be so for you. And I'm wondering if, is there anything else that you found that's, that's like super helpful? Absolutely. On a daily basis, I just must remind myself that I am an alcoholic. And then like we just spoke about, you know, we cannot pull ourselves into thinking we can have just one because, you know, we, we can't just have one. I couldn't just go to a party and have one, you know, I might have one bottle, <laughs> but um, in all honesty, I have to remind myself and I must be grateful my sobriety. And then what also has been really powerful is, I spoke up briefly, is the people, places, and things in my life that are triggers for being uh, drinking. And we have to change all of that. I have to change the people I surrounded myself with and others that were in, in addiction uh, that frequented, like, say, drug houses or had drug, um, I guess, the people who sold the drug dealers and things like that. You know, we I've heard people say in meetings where we have to delete their phone numbers and we have to, you know, move out of our neighborhoods. I mean, I physically took my children I left the place that made me want to drink and it was a trigger for me as well as my ex-husband so we have to be careful of those triggers and we have to be careful of um, you know just the things in our home you know they talk about get rid of your wine glasses and get rid of any paraphernalia and things like that that will trigger you to want to drink and take care of yourself and in that process I've learned you know to exercise self-care gotcha do you feel like an addictive personality is something that you're always going to have as in, 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 and what I mean, let me, let me ask that a different way for people that are alcoholics and for people that are recovering alcoholics, do you find that those people are like that in everything they do? Like for, uh, for example, like do people, I'm, I don't drink anymore. And now what I do is I exercise. Oh, how do you exercise? I exercise like three hours a day, every day, you know, or like, um, I don't know. Now what I do is I clean my house and my, <laughs> my house is f just spick and span all the time, you know, like, or you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. it, does it tend to be like sort of overboard behaviors all over the place? Do you find? You know, when I first got into the program, I found that they taught me to, you know, take on something extracurricular that would fulfill the time of when I was drinking. So oh, okay. typically if I drank, they, they were to tell me if I drank in the morning, then get to a meeting in the morning. Or if your time to drink was mostly at bed before night so you could sleep or, you know, get to sleep, then get to a couple meetings at night at say six or eight, and then you wouldn't get home till say 930 so that you were fulfilling that time of being in recovery and staying sober of the time in correlation to when you were drinking. Almost like if you're trying to get over cigarettes, like maybe chewing some gum or something, like even if there's not nicotine in it, like just like doing something with your mouth, you're just trying to kind of fill the the empty space there. Yes. And something healthy, you know, be surrounded by people in recovery that would, you know, we were able to, of course, relate to. And, but for myself, I think it's all in how you condition yourself mentally. Uh, I haven't found that you know, because I had all these addictive behaviors per se that I had still filled it with anything else other than now building my business and helping others as many as I can around the world. 
So I haven't found that to be true for myself, but I have seen it in other people where, of course, uh, typically if they have an addiction problem, there is another uh, disorder or issue that is in direct proportion to the alcoholism. Such as anxiety or depression or something like that? or Yes, exactly. Because, the, you know, the alcoholism uh, is a depressor itself. And then if you take pills on top of that and other drugs, that's a disaster waiting to happen in all areas and facets of our life. So we have to learn to have healthy behaviors and we have to do it in moderation. Got it. Anything else you want to share? I just really believe that when we as a person want to transform, we have to do a lot of work. And I don't think that people really understand what it goes into to transforming our lives. You know, it's a it's an everyday process that I have to wake up and be grateful and thank God for my life and stay on track. And for myself, I know that I have to put in a lot of hard work and um, I have to be able to have a filter. That's one of the greatest gifts I've been given is to, you know, not allow the negativity to creep in, not allow anybody to get me off my path and to stay spiritual and help as many people as possible. So a filter for negativity. So in other words, you're choosing to, as much as possible, only let the positive the positive aspects of your environment come in, essentially keeping the negative ones at bay? Exactly. Because the more that we surround ourselves with people that are like ourselves, like you mentioned previously, you know, they uplift us and they inspire us and they believe in us as well as we believe in ourselves. And it is imperative for the people that I surround myself with and that I I talk with on a daily basis that, you know, they are going to empower me and allow me to step into my space and to own, you know, my worth and, and be able to do the things in my life I need to do. And I've learned to be able to delete and block and move on and not internalize anything that anybody has, you know, said or stated about me that is untrue. It's not, it's not a direct reflection of myself. Yeah, that's super powerful. And uh, I can see that, you know, when it's a great thing when you can put yourself in a, in a positive supportive healing environment or habitat and you should do that as much as you possibly can. And I hear you doing that. And when you can't, there's certain things you can't control. When you can't uh, be in a positive, supporting, healing environment on the outside, at least to some degree, you can control your internal habitat by not letting that negative negativity come from the outside to the inside. Oh, yes, absolutely. I know it's really difficult for us to allow things to creep in or for life to show up and, you know, the, the negativity to seep in and, you know, being healing touch certified, I've had to use that on myself as well as my children, just being able to open up our chakra areas and to, to have a healing energy come about in a space that, you know, might not be as optimal or, and be able to use that with others. And that's been very transformational for me and being able to give back to others what was so freely given to me. This is jumping back a little bit, but I think it's I think it's poignant. Are you familiar with the term codependency? I am. <laughs> yeah. Can you give any advice about how someone can know if they're in a codependent relationship? 
Absolutely. When I was in recovery, I was recom- I recom- was recommended by my sponsor to read a book called uh, Codependency No More by Melody Beattie. And uh, it talks about how we are dependent on everything in life during our active addiction. We're dependent on alcohol to save us or numb us or get us to sleep and those sort of things. We're dependent on someone to purchase oftentimes the alcohol on us and our enablers and our life situations and I've heard people couch surfing and stuff to be able to be dependent on them and their living situations and our rescuers, you know, when we, we hit rock bottom, we're dependent on someone to pick us up or, you know, to bail us out of jail or to get our license back and things like that. And so in recovery, we learn to be independent. And oftentimes that is hard for the people who have, you know, we've relied on uh, the dependency of because we are awakening ourselves. And what happens is, you know, we become independent and we no longer need them anymore or we no longer need their services or we no longer, you know, need our enablers and they don't know how to uh, react to that. So that's very hard on in the dynamics and relationships and situations because when we learn to become dependent, our dependers or the people who are enabling us and being codependent, you know, oftentimes aren't really sure of how to, to speak to us anymore and have those interactions that they were used to. Sure, because that codependent relationship allows the enabler, the person that is bailing you out of jail or helping you get some drinks or or whatever whatever they're doing, that's a nice place that's a comfortable place for them to be, even though it's it's dysfunctional. So to me, uh you mentioned independent, which I think can feel like a powerful place uh in comparison to being codependent on someone. And I think the most beautiful and the most powerful place is to be interdependent. Do you have any thoughts on that? Sure. You know, through our process of being able to heal ourselves, you know, we learn to take care of ourselves. We learn to, um, you know, again, not rely on others. And we learn to say no. And in part of that process, you know, that's a powerful statement for us. Because think about when we're drinking, you know, it's always yes, yes, yes. And oftentimes, you know, we might not remember that we said yes or you know, that we were, uh, you know, the situations that we were in. And for us, we weren't powerful and we weren't alive and we didn't have the vibrancy and things like that. And, and our relationships change. You know, we we learn to select different mates. We learn to select people who do not alter and, and try and enhance our altered state of being. We actually choose a healthy mate. When we are healthy, we will choose another mate that's healthy and one that loves themselves because we've learned to love ourselves. And that's really powerful because, you know, you have a healthy person, two healthy people in relationships, that tends to work optimally. Kelly, what's your number one health tip? You know, if we can keep away emotional distressors, the number one killer to us in many facets of life, then I really believe that we will be able to, um, you know, take care of ourselves. I do a lot of work to keep away stressors in my life or people that are toxic in our life and learn to, you know, get rid of the baggage that we have because when we carry around emotional instabilities in our backpack, everybody else gets to feel the effects of that. And that holds true to the way our digestion works in our body and all of the health, you know, issues that people have and the brain fog and lacking mental clarity and, um, you, you know, all those things play a part of how we function in life. And when we get rid of those stressors, especially the emotional distressors, we really can have a vibrant life. Wow. Well, <laughs> you're you're hitting on a lot of things that are that are very 
significant in in my uh in my life and in my practice um you're familiar i think that with my work at habitat retreats and there it's all about uh getting getting a person out of their poor habitat and into a healing habitat and yes and then you're you're saying that once you do that you can uh you can live a vibrant life. And of course the name of the show is vibrant potential. So you're kind of hit <laughs> your, your number one health tip is like what my life is based on. <laughs> so, and I so, practice that. So that's been good. <laughs> okay. That's great. So give people a couple of examples. Can you list a couple of those? Like the, you call them uh, distressors or you could just say stressors probably. Sure. What I like to educate uh, you know people on is just the environmental toxins that seep into our bodies that are, are hormonal disruptors as well as emotional. You know, our body does not um, make or produce the um, normalized what we consider the normalized uh, hormone levels when we are in distress. You know, our bodies go into inflammation mode. There's acne. There's that brain fog. There's not, you know, the lacking of the mental clarity and things like that. And so when we're able to remove those environmental toxins that are disruptors in our body, then we're able to think properly. We're able to function optimally. We're able to have, you know, those mental clarities and we're not moody and we don't slip into those depressive states or, uh, you know, sometimes those anxious modes. And we can stay calm through situations where we, you know, we might, uh, feel less otherwise and inclined to be more aggressive or have those um behaviorals got it so there's emotional stress there's chemical stress you're talking about toxicities so the the stressors can come from different areas yes and what i've learned is to lead the integrative lifestyle you know where i don't our environment's already toxic enough so we have to learn to eliminate those toxins in our environment i'm talking even the dryer sheets the candles the plugins, anything that has drug warning labels on the back of your product are, in, are hormonal uh, disruptors as well as the environmental toxicities. And we walk around toxic, and then we also put toxic products on our bodies, the health and beauty aids. You know, um, some of the, the, the deodorants we use, you know, have the aluminum in them and things like that. So I've had to learn that I, I have to use everything that is the BPA-free and phosphate-free and things like that so that I don't walk around in an environment that is less toxic, but then I'm also adding toxicities on with the products that we use. Got it. So when you say integrative lifestyle, you're saying... I'm saying an all-natural approach to healthcare. For example, um, I was put on a sleep regimen where I was given Ambien or one or two milligrams of Lunesta or a 0.5 of Xanax, and that was to sleep. And then I learned through that process in order to get a good sleep pattern, it was going to take 30 days, and I was going to sleep well, get in bed, and, you know, have no distractions. Well, learning as working with the integrative docs that I was privileged to work with and learn from, that if I could just take uh, 800 to 1,000 milligrams of magnesium to sleep at night as opposed to, uh, you know, something pharmaceutically, I was able to take a non-habit-forming supplement that I was able to sleep better and, and I wasn't addicted to it and I didn't have to keep increasing the dose every night or, you know, every month. Oh, beautiful. And then... Uh, one thing I love about that strategy is instead of getting the side effects, the negative side effects from the pharmaceuticals, such as the Ambien in your case, then you're getting side benefits from magnesium because magnesium, you probably know, is the it's the number one mineral deficiency in America. 
Oh, absolutely. I use it for PMS, body cramps, uh, headaches. I don't have any acetaminophen or anything in my home. Everything I use um, is uh, all natural. And it's, you know, I don't have any side effects. I don't wake up feeling groggy or nauseous or anything like that. I've used it for stress and anxiety and maybe a 500 milligrams throughout the day. And I function optimally. And it's the same with, you know, our gut health when I take a probiotic, uh, one or two. And what my body doesn't absorb, you know, it sloughs off and is excreted. And it's just, you know, I, I feel better. We, we see a lot of that with people who hold stress. You know, stresses in our body disrupts the natural flow of our digestion. And then people need to take uh, something like a Panox, one or two capsules each meal to, you know, help digest their food. And um, our bodies already, you know, use a lot of energy to break down the digestive enzymes for our food as well as the, um, you know, supplements that we take. How can people find you? Right. So I have my global blog, The Power of You, and I also have my public figure page, um, Kelly Benamati Life Coach. And I have just recently finished my book. Got it. So what are the main things that you're offering through your blog? Well, the blog I'm offering, people from all over the world post in there, anything health-related, uh, you know, emotional supplements, how we can help people to live a vibrant lifestyle. I give a lot of um, coaching tips of, you know, who are we right now? Who do we want to become? Where are, you know, how do we get there? And then the time frame of that. And that's really powerful because when we actually put that down, you know, people start to see, you know, well, they might not be exactly where they want it to be in life right now. And I know it's taken me a while to actually blossom myself and pull back that onion of, of you know, this is who I am and I can step into my power to reach my vibrant potential. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and just be able to finally use my skills that God has given me. I mean, you know, just having these um, work with a lot of people all over the world and, and the life coaches have really taught me that I am valuable and I'm worthy. And I've had to learn through the process that all the families I get to work with and children, and I pray for them, by the way, in the process. And I don't know how spiritual you are, but, you know, I get to see some kids who really need my help. And I'm, I'm, I'm really good at um, loving them through the process. What's your book called? It is called Walking in Our Children's Shoes. And I speak about, you know, just, uh, of course, these environmental toxicities and disruptors and how children are, you know, they're the moody and then they want to send them to get medicated and go to therapy and all that stuff. But honestly, when you remove these environmental toxins and alleviate the hormonal disruptors and give your children love and time, they tend to function optimally. They're not sick. I talk about setting your children up for success and how you need to play a part in that. Sounds wonderful. Thank you. Well, that's beautiful, Kelly. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. You bet. Take care. Thank you, too. Visit drchrisfrickman.com for more cutting-edge content, including nutrition and detoxification advice, unique fitness videos, and more.